You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of The Ethical Life, a place where we talk about the intersection of ethics and modern life. I'm Scott Rada, social media manager for Lee Enterprises, and I'm joined as always by Rick Kite, who is the head of the Ethics Institute at Viterbo University in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Hi, Rick. Hi, Scott. A recent poll found that, unsurprisingly, Americans say inflation is their number one concern. Next on the list are worries about political extremism, crime, and immigration. Those are all important issues where our government can set policies to help ease these problems. There's certainly not a consensus about which policy is best, but that's why we have elections. But Rick, what worries me is that our elections don't seem to be focused on the issues people say they actually care about. The Biden White House recently released a detailed plan to help make housing more affordable. And during the president's trip to Asia, he announced a trade deal to boost the economy of the 12 nations involved. I'm not saying that either of these two proposals are the proper prescription to help the country out of its current troubles, but what I'm certain about is that these are not the issues most candidates and voters will be talking about in the run-up to the midterm elections. So I, I guess the question I have when we start this episode out is why do Americans seem to have a pretty good idea about the problems the country faces, but when heading to the polls, they focus on emotional and cultural issues instead. I think that's because they, despite what people say they they are paying attention to or what they say they care about, they really pay more attention to the cultural and emotional issues. And you can just look at like, what what is the big news story the past week? It's the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. It's I mean, it's not the stories about inflation or the war in Ukraine. And, and you know, just to pause on that for a second, and, and we should note that as we're recording this, we're learning more about a terrible shooting in a school in Texas. But certainly, at least before that news broke today, you're exactly right that uh, celebrity trial uh, with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard was the most talked about news story, if you want to call it a news story, uh, across social media by a bunch. But But then again... I bet if you could tell if, but people also care a lot about inflation and people should care a lot about inflation. It's important. And is it just because they don't think that there is really a solution to it or they don't understand the causes or, or why, why aren't people reading and trying to learn more about that instead of trying to learn more about two celebrities who they'll never, ever meet? Well, there's multiple reasons. One is that there's no story. I mean, it's, it's really, with something like inflation, it's hard to have a, some kind of narrative where there's a good guys and bad guys. Uh, and so the, the stories that, that you get people attracted to, both on social media, but it, you know, also TV news and, and, and newspaper and so forth, tend to be shootings. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are always really popular. They get a lot of views. Um, and then, you know, celebrity things. Inflation is complex. There's no clear good guy, bad guy narrative to portray there. And the other thing is, 
really to do something about inflation takes a lot of work by multiple people for a long period of time. It's not, there's no short fix to inflation. But you're saying there's no good guy or bad guy. I think that's right. However, Republicans right now are trying to set it up is that there is a bad guy, that Joe Biden is single-handedly, and maybe the Democrats too, are single-handedly responsible for this. And they're trying to uh, lay this problem at, at, at their doorstep. You could argue, and again, I'm not saying that they're not responsible in some ways. I mean, there's some spending issues that may be to blame and some other policy things that are, are certainly worth discussing. But, you know, it, it just seems like Republicans want to say, well, and we, we know inflation's bad, and we know Joe Biden and the Democrats are in charge, so vote for us. And goodness knows, come November, that might be enough. But don't you think voters sh should be requiring Republicans to answer the question, yeah, but what's your plan? Yeah, but even to ask that question and to pay attention to it requires an ability, a willingness to participate or in, in the effort to gain an understanding of it. And it's really hard. Even economists will disagree about what the main contributors to inflation are. They will have different solutions. And so it, 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 takes, it takes a real commitment to trying to understand pretty complex issues to have an informed opinion on inflation. It's easy to have an uninformed opinion, and so that's well, why I think we. Well, inflation's bad. That's a, that's right. an opinion. That's a, and and just saying like it's it's all driven by Biden's uh, misguided energy policy, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, it, that's probably part of the cause, but there's much more to it than that. And we've I guess talked about this before, but I, I think it's worth repeating that. You know, I think just how we look at politics today has has just changed so much. Not too long ago, uh, we would call people on opposite sides of the aisle rivals. Now they seem to be enemies. You know, conversely, politicians used to have supporters, and, and now it seems like they have fans. And I don't think this fortification of, of politics is especially useful. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. One of the things that's happened is we, we made politics a series of pronouncements about intended results rather than really paying attention to actual results. And so we get a lot of campaign promises. Um, I think most voters are pretty cynical about whether the you know politicians will actually follow through on them. And yet what else do you have to go by? You know, like the, the follow-up on like what actually happens with say economic policy and so forth is is we don't pay much attention to it. And I think part of that is the changing nature of the of the news. I mean, news for decades now, it's got more and more focused on headlines and, and really news snippets. And social media has exacerbated that trend. But it used to be that like most Americans who followed politics would read stories that would go into some depth about what the issues are. And so I think we had a much more informed electorate, at least among the people who followed the news. And now you get people who say they follow the news, but what they're doing is they're following a series of headlines. Yeah, and their knowledge is broad, but not deep at all. But not deep. And, and these are, I mean, some of the problems that Americans say they care most about, like inflation and crime, are, are complex problems that require 
multiple angles of attack to address them. And they require a commitment over a long period of time. And they also require bipartisan solutions to the problems. And so now we have a, a period of time where bipartisanship is, is largely dismissed, I think, by both parties. There's very little attention to long-term focus. I mean, for one thing, we have, we have legislators right now who are using their funds for campaign staff to hire social media managers. And that, I mean, that used to be used slowly to hiring aides who would then draft legislation. And they're not doing that. They're just, they're just messaging. Well, and, and I think we know why is, you know, in the not too distant past, you would, if you were an incoming member of Congress, you would uh, not have a lot of power, especially if you were in the minority, and you would have to uh, make those connections and, and really kind of work over time to be a respected and, and listened to member of your party. Now we have uh, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. I mean, Alexandria Cortez, uh, certainly one on the Democratic side, and there's several more on the Republican side, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and of course, another one who is uh, lost a primary, Madison Cawthorn. But they have, because they're so outrageous in what they say and their actions, they get attention right away. And that is a huge, not only driver of fundraising, but it also, uh, you know, kind of sets the message in some ways for their party. Not only sends a message for the party, it's what the party rewards. I mean, committee assignments within the parties now are made largely on the basis of fundraising. And so you don't get any reward within your party for actually crafting useful legislation. And you especially don't get any credit for working with the other side. Um, and those are perverse incentives. And I don't know what we do about that. And I, I don't even know how, how widely this is known, but I mean, it, we have record low confidence in, the, in our political institutions right now. But even within the institutions, there is less confidence in the leaders of the party than there are in, in the rank and file members. And yet um, nobody is, is pushing for changing the leadership of the parties. And so we've got a real problems of our, our political system not working to represent the constituents the way it was designed to. There was a column, and we'll certainly link to this in the show notes, uh, about it was written by someone, I think, who's on the left side of the political spectrum. But his uh, reaction to this was the Democrats... Uh, in order to win this uh, fall and, and maybe beyond this fall, need to take a cue from the Republican Party and just simply get angry to, to uh, you know, we, we've, we've had at least two years, if not um, maybe uh, the previous four years before with a president who always seemed to be angry about something. And whereas Republic or Democrats rather always want to seem in many cases to sit back and say, well, let's try to explain this and let's try to take a more rational approach to this and a more nuanced approach. I think uh, the author of this piece says that is not working. And to make that uh, emotional connection, you, you've got to be loud and you've got to be angry. And that's what gets people's attention. I hope he's wrong. Do you think he is? I think he's largely wrong. I don't, I, I mean, anger, 
anger is a cheap motivator. So it's, it's easy to get people angry, but it doesn't last and people don't feel good about what happens as a result of it. I, I think, but the point about needing to make an emotional connection is, is really significant. And I think Democrats for a long time have had a tendency um, to, to, to build a campaign on a laundry list of issues that oftentimes I feel like they're telling the voters, these are the issues you should care about, rather than listening to what voters really do care about. But also, like, they, they struggle to develop a narrative, like, this is who we are, and th these are the sorts of things they care about. And instead, they tend to say, these are the things that I will do. And, um, and, and there, is a, there is an emotional disconnect there. And I, I find it really striking just seeing the difference sometimes in, especially in state races, in Republican and Democratic campaigns. And it's it's really obvious that very often the Democrats will will be focused in a kind of distance manner on a on a series of issues that lacks any emotional appeal. And and even if we can agree, and I think you know there's there's some evidence that shows an emotional appeal works. I mean, look at Barack Obama certainly was an emotional appeal to many Americans. Donald Trump, in a very different way, was as well. But I think the difference there is that in many ways, if not most ways, uh, then-candidate Barack Obama was relying on what I'll call positive emotions, you know, telling a story about what it meant for him to be in America. You know, his famous speech at the at the convention was, I'm, there's not a red America, a blue America, there's a United States of America. And, and he really seemed to have a very aspirational tone, especially in his first campaign. And I think that emotion, I, I hope at least, is more successful. And I'll, I'll, I'll stop for a moment and interrupt myself and say, you know, Ronald Reagan, even many years before Obama, was, was very successful as well about crafting a very positive emotional uh, response. And I think, you know, if you talk to uh, a lot of uh, people who run campaigns, they, they, those may be two examples they show of, of what you need to do to win. But then along comes Donald Trump, and he may have appealed to emotion, but it seemed like his campaign, unlike Obama and Reagan, really uh, went after the negative emotions that people had. And I think that's still a trend you're seeing play out in many corners of the Republican Party today, that they're using grievances and fear and uh, to really motivate their voters. I'm not sure that that's a great look. No, I don't think it's a great look, but it is a, it is a narrative that, that connects somehow our past, present, and future. And, and, and this is sometimes what I think that Democrats have lacked and the, and the, the piece in Politico that you're referring to, um, the author is pointing out this, this lack of a narrative. There's, it, you, for one thing, people, don't, people won't remember. They don't connect with emotionally and then they don't even remember if you have a laundry list of information. And we, we know this from different kinds of studies on, on how people recall information. If you embed the information in a story, people will recall facts much better than if you just give them a list of facts. And so this is important. So it, whether it's a positive message or a negative, and I would prefer the positive, but it has to be embedded in some kind of narrative. And, and you know, sticking on Donald Trump for a second, he, he had that narrative. 
You know, the Make America Great Again was uh, part of a message that really resonated with large parts of this country. And obviously, in, in 2016, that put him over the top. Yes, and, and, and you can see why that resonates in a way that it, it, if you just focus on these are all the problems we're going to fix, that the narrative that's implied is we're, we're a country in which we, we, who we are is just a whole bunch of problems and, and, and then, then somebody needs to fix them. Well, that's not, it's not a narrative that you can identify with or become part of. And this is the other thing. I mean, you can't set up a political message in such a way that you say, like, all you need to do is support me. I'm going to fix things. And so you create a distance between the voter and the, and the politician who fixes things. And, and this is a problem that Democrats, I think they're well aware of. I've heard it over and over for, you know, for a couple of decades now. They have a tendency to come across as patronizing. Hillary Clinton especially had that, had that difficulty. Well, when you come across as patronizing, I mean, you might be right about an issue, but people resent it. You told me a story many years ago, Rick, that you may or may not remember about uh, Paul O'Neill, who was the, uh, I believe he was the first Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush. But before that, he was a CEO of Alcoa, the aluminum company. Do you remember that story? Yep. Yeah. And I, and I, why do you tell readers that, or listeners, that story, and then I'll bring it to why I think it matters to this discussion. So Alcoa was a, a very large, I think the world's largest aluminum uh, manufacturer, and, and they, um, they were really struggling. Earnings had, earnings had gone down, productivity was down, morale was really low. When he came in, he focused on safety, and he made safety the theme of every talk he gave, whether it was talking to workers or investors, or company leadership, he talked about safety. And he did it to such an extent um, that the, the board that hired him even thought they'd made a huge mistake. Because why wasn't he focused on earnings? He was just talking about safety. And, and, and the company had a, a remarkable turnaround under his leadership. They not only improved in safety so that they, they, they went from a relatively high accident rate to like industry-leading low rates of reported incidences, but they improved in profitability year after year after year. But that's not the part of the story that I remember you telling. That part is all true, but then you told me, if I remember right, and I'll put you on the spot here, is that after doing all that, Paul O'Neill left the company. And what, in my memory, was that you said is that what he was most proud about is that even after he left, this uh, new culture of safety continued. Is that, am I that's, remembering that that's, right? That's right. And he wanted, he wanted to, to make it such a part of the culture that it would continue even after he left. And he took that as the greatest sign of his, of his accomplishment. And it's funny, you told that story a long time ago, at least to me. And when I remembered that story was the days after Donald Trump was elected president. Why is that? Because in some ways, I'll draw the analogy that uh, Barack Obama was Paul O'Neill. He was trying to change the conversation in America. He was trying to change the trajectory of what was important. And when he left office, unlike Paul O'Neill, 
everything made a 180, well, everything, many things made a 180 degree turn. Your example with the Paul O'Neill was hit that continuity even after he left showed he was a success. Do you think that since things turned so quickly away from what Democrats felt were important, does that tarnish forever the legacy of Barack Obama? I think it does. And and for me, I I had real hopes that Obama would be a different kind of president than he was. Um, I I really I thought he was very good at speeches. I thought, you know, and so think, you know, he's kind of a policy wonk, and I like I like that. Um, and yet, I'm not sure he was a very good leader. And and in this respect, I mean, I was. Let let me make it more personal. I I learned something really valuable when I was I was asked to take over leadership of a small nonprofit for a while. And I became the interim leader of this interim president of this nonprofit for about four years. I agreed to do it for six months, I say. But I had a bunch of ideas for how I thought the organization could improve. And I started just implementing them. And it was disastrous because even though I was doing things that needed to be done, once I started doing them, other people stepped back because then they didn't have to show up. And I realized I'd made a huge error. It wasn't so much that the right things get done. I had to I had to distribute responsibility for things in such a way that we got more participation. And there's a tendency oftentimes by I think really competent, very bright people to figure out what needs to be done and then to push them through in ways that leave others behind and makes people less engaged. Now what O'Neill does in that story, he identifies something that everybody has to participate in in order to make it happen. Especially those on the front lines of the operation. Right. And so he gets involved. He, he picked the one issue, really, that in that company, in, in a highly dangerous kind of work in manufacturing, that everybody from, from the person who cleans up at the end of the day all the way up to the top has to be involved and has to collaborate on. And by doing that, by getting everybody involved, they up their performance in every single area. Now, this is the sort of thing that FDR, of course, does during, you know, with the, um, during the New Deal. Obama, I don't think he did that. At some point, and it might be because our politics have become so polarized, but at some point, he started going back to what's been an increasing trend of just doing more and more executive orders. And um, and when you do that, you've abandoned cultural change. You say, okay, everything I do is going to be short term. And once you went that route, um, the the polarization that had already been ramping up, like under George W. Bush, um, only accelerated under Obama. And for me, that was a disappointment. I had I had thought, given some things in his history that he had done before, that that he he would be more focused on cultural change rather than short-term solutions. Before we go, I wanted to touch on something that was in the news uh, recently was the the terrible shooting in Buffalo, New York. And the, I guess it's safe to call him the, the, the shooter at this point, says that what, he, what people uh, call replacement theory, 
which is that there is a coordinated and intentional uh, uh, plan in place to bring in more immigrants to change the uh, makeup of this nation was what drove him to go into a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood and, and kill a bunch of people. And that's something that the Republican Party in some of its fringes seems to be playing footsie with a little bit. And, and uh, the on most nights, most watched uh, cable news pundit Tucker Carlson uh, brings up on uh, quite often, there's probably no way that the Republicans can unring that bell, but what, what, how can they proceed down this and, and not look like they're in some way responsible for uh, what happened in New York? It, 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 is, it is so hard, you, you know, when you start looking behind what's obviously wrong. You know, here, here you have an, a, another young man using really violent uh, means using violence against fellow citizens and the, the wrongness of that, then you, then you also have issues of mental illness that don't get identified or, or treated. But then you try to look back further and say, well, is there some kind of theory? Are there certain ideas that have kind of become memes that create the environment in which these things happen? And, and you can look at something kind of easier to identify like replacement theory. Well, yeah, this is a this is a, in some ways, a really stupid idea, and you know, and if it catches fire and you get people promoting it, and I think, I think certainly Tucker Carlson is one who's been identified as as like promoting it in ways that that are suspicious and self-serving. Um, but you also have to recognize that like Democrats, in a way, are complicit in this. I mean, you have. Uh, you've had some stories coming out of the Brookings Institution that are analyzing the ways in which the Democrats really need to take advantage of demographic changes in order to to, to secure more political victories. Um, you have uh, uh, somebody like in a recent uh, political story last year, uh, and I'll quote from this, De Georgia's fast-changing demographics, its multiracial contingent of newcomers, are a big reason why Joe Biden won the state. Yeah, because Georgia looks different today than it did 25 years ago or even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, you have uh, Jared Turner, who was a political strategist for a Democratic candidate, saying last year, what we're seeing is that our politics is no longer red and blue. It's black and white. Now, that looks pretty much like what is being called replacement theory, uh, but they aren't necessarily advocating that this is a strategy, and I don't think that there's anything there. They're just diagnosing what's going on. But there's a fine line between saying, well, we're diagnosing what's going on, and it might be advantageous for us, to saying, well, we're really employing this as a strategy, and we're trying to encourage it. And so, so you have something that's pretty complicated here where where we have more and more people on both sides saying that politics is really a matter of struggle between races or identity groups. And I think that's what the bad thing is. It's not just that there's, say, replacement theory. You could call it a lot of different things. It's our identity politics taking over. And once you have identity politics taking over and we don't identify ourselves as Americans first, um, 
we're going to have more and more problems because it, then at that point, it all comes down to power struggle. We end each show by tackling an ethical dilemma. And Rick, here's my question for you. You follow the local news closely and often talk with friends and colleagues about local issues. A neighbor who often puts up yard signs for candidates for whom you'd never vote asks you about an upcoming local city council race. You have a clear opinion about who the better candidate is, and you're pretty certain that person's views would not align with those of your neighbor. Do you suggest your neighbor vote for the candidate you support, or do you take time to outline the issues so he can see that the other candidate more closely matches his views? I think um, that that depends on how, how friendly you are with the neighbor and how mm-hmm. well you know another. Now, um, I mean, I, I have neighbors that I'm pretty sure we differ on some political things who are similar on other things. And, and I actually enjoy talking politics with some of them and some, some more than others. And, and yeah, I would. It, it, so if I think of like the people who my neighbors are, I would be happy to talk to them and outline um, kind of what the issues are, and even on the them. on the local level too, though. Because I think it's, yeah. it's I think we all know people, and there's far too many of these people, in my opinion, who have an opinion about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or or some national figures. But when you ask about their school board or city council, their eyes sort of just glaze over. So if if this person is clearly, uh, you know, we'll just hypothetically say this person had Trump signs in his yard. Uh, for both the last two elections, and there's a guy running for city council who, although, and we should, in in some states, including ours, those are nonpartisan races, but clearly seems to have uh, positions that closely monitor or closely mirror those of, of Donald Trump, would you try to gently nudge him toward that candidate, even though that candidate you don't think would be the best for the for that race? I would try as much as possible to stay out of the kind of polarized ideological battle type of stuff and focus on what the issues are. And I would want to ask questions. I mean, especially when it comes to the local races, I, I, I'm always interested in what other people in the city, what their experience has been, what their perception of the issues are and what their experience with the candidates has been. And I'm often really surprised. I'll find um, like, certain local candidates for office that I have an opinion about. Um, I'll, I'll talk to somebody who's had a very different experience, and I find that my mind might change about who they are and how res- like how responsive they are to issues in the neighborhood. But certainly, in, you know, unless you live in a big, big city, it's not unusual to know someone in your neighborhood who has a close connection with some of these people. And you know, it's very unlikely your neighbor's going to have a close connection with Joe Biden, for example. So those, those can be useful. That's right. Yeah. So I, I enjoy those kinds of conversations. So, but, so you would, so, but if, but if this, your neighbor, just so I'm clear on my, my question is, is truly just a, uh, I'll call it a national issues guy and maybe state as well, but because in our state, we don't have R's and D's before local, uh, races, because that's how local races are in Wisconsin. You would, uh, have a conversation with him, but you would not say, geez, I think you should vote for Cindy or, or, or Steve because, 
they're the best candidate, you would just sort of talk him through the issues more than than that. Yeah, and if I if I have a strong opinion on who they should vote for, and they and, and you know, and they're supporting the other candidate, I'd say I, I might say like, have you ever considered? Have you ever considered Joe? I mean, mm-hmm, or do you know mm-hmm. anything about him? I might ask a question like that, but I am, I'm often pleasantly surprised when I have a discussion with somebody I think is like firmly fixed into some ideological viewpoint, and I have a genuine discussion with them, like how much we have in common that I thought we would not, and so I would want to have, I would want to have the conversation with an open mind. I, and I'll, uh, I'll admit that if I were in the scenario uh, that I outline, I, I think I would probably be not as uh, uh, generous as you. I think I would, if I truly thought that a particular candidate was the best choice, I would uh, uh, tell my neighbor, especially if he asked what my position was, that I would say I'm supporting Fred and I, I hope he does too and not get too deep into it and hope that when he goes to the ballot box, he puts the check mark, check mark next to Fred's name and then I consider that a win. And maybe that's not doing a good educational job, but I, uh, I, I'll admit that's probably what I'd do. I thought you were going to say you'd steal his sign in the dead of night. <laughs> Before we go, we wanted to share with listeners some exciting news Starting with this episode of the Ethical Life podcast, it will now be available each and every week. Our loyal listeners may notice that our episodes might be a bit shorter, but we are excited about the increased frequency. And as a reminder, the Ethical Life podcast is a production of Lee Enterprises. Chris Lay is Lee's podcast operation manager. Please subscribe to the Ethical Life on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And be sure to check out Rick's column about ethics on all Lee newspaper websites. For Rick Kite, I'm Scott Rada. Thank you for joining us. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.